Awesome. All right. If you guys want to turn to Jonah chapter 4, uh, we're going to be continuing our series on Jonah. Do I sound okay? New room, trying to figure everything out. Okay. Awesome. Uh, actually, we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 10. And uh, I, I'll start reading. It says, When God saw what they had done and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious God, and you were compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Again, we see Jonah being very dramatic in this story. Uh, my wife and I are trying, like many of you, to be good parents in the midst of this pandemic. And there's all sorts of things that we're already trying to navigate as parents in this new digital world that we all inhabit. Uh, the pandemic and the quarantine has made it even uh, more challenging. And so, uh, like many of you, one of the questions we keep asking is, how much screen time is okay for our children? And as we go into the quarantine, we're like, okay, we're going to have all these activities and things for them to do, and you know, they're not going to be on screens all the time. And Summertime in Phoenix, this was crazy. We had like 145 days of 100-degree weather. Kids couldn't go outside. And as the quarantine has gone, gone on, we went from like kids can never be on screens to, okay, school's not starting up yet, and we're going crazy. And so we're at the point where like, we're just going to let our kids do whatever they want on screens. You know, they're playing games. That's great. They're all going to be socially awkward at this point anyway. So... Whatever, anything goes. So that, you know, our kids are, are constantly playing different, like, games on their apps, on their phones, and uh, our phones or tablets or whatever. Um, and it, it, it reminded me of, you know, well, I, I play some of these games with my, with my sons, and so we play, you know, like, Clash of Clans or Brawl Stars. Maybe you play some of those games. And, uh, but there's an oldie but goodie um, that, that I'm reminded of. And I'm reminded of when I think of, like, Jonah in this passage. This is going somewhere, I promise. Uh, an old game called Pocket God. Has anyone ever played Pocket God? Do you remember Pocket God? They stopped doing updates on it, so like people stopped playing. But, but Pocket God, okay, well, here's, here's kind of what you, basically you have a, an island with islanders and inhabitants, and you get to play God, which means you get to do whatever to the islanders that you want. And so kind of a basic description is, uh, here, here's, here's how it's described in the app store. It says, what kind of a God would you be? Benevolent or vengeful? Play pocket God and discover the answer within yourself. And so, like, you have this remote island, and you can kind of, like, play with the... So, if you're a benevolent God, you could do things like, you know, give a fishing rod to, like, your islanders, and they can fish and get food and have life. Um, if you were a vengeful God, the, the ways that this can come out is uh, a couple different things. You could throw islanders into volcanoes. Uh, you can use islanders as shark bait. Uh, you can bowl for islanders with large rocks, or you can create earthquakes that destroy the villages of your islanders. So uh, it, it is something that, like, you know, for those of you who have anger issues, it's a good little outlet. Like, you can take your stress out on the islanders. Um, but it reveals something. If you had a chance to play God, 
What, would you be benevolent or would you be vengeful? Jonah chapter 4, I think, is one of the most underrated chapters in all of Scripture. Because when you think of Jonah, you think of Nineveh and the fish and Jonah and the whale and all these like, children's stories that come back. Jonah chapter 4, though, reveals something about both Jonah's heart and God's heart. What is this God like? What is, what is this prophet like that is supposed to be the voice of God? And is there a disconnect? What we find is a lot of the lessons of the story of Jonah are revealed. They emerge in Jonah chapter 4. So as we read through Jonah chapter 4, what we find is, is oh my goodness, there's a lot here that we so often overlook. One of the first things that we, we learn as, we, as, as Jonah's heart is kind of revealed in this passage is, is the real motive of why Jonah fled. The real motive of why Jonah fled. And as it tells us that uh, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says Jonah seems very angry. He's upset at God's mercy. And he says, isn't this exactly what I said? This is exactly what I thought. This is exactly what I knew, that you were going to be a gracious and compassionate God. You were going to, to forgive these Ninevites and relent. That's why I ran. That's why I got out of here. What we find is that, that Jonah doesn't, it, it, you kind of have this assumption that if he's going to Nineveh, Nineveh is this powerful city. Nineveh is this place of evil and this place of corruption. But Jonah's like scared. Like, I don't want to go to Nineveh because they'll kill me. I'll deliver this message and these people will, I'll become a martyr. And so we have this assumption that maybe Jonah's like not up for the task and he's, he's fleeing. But here in this passage, he admits, no, I fled, Lord, not because I was scared, not because I was living in fear. I fled because I can't stand those people and I don't want to go give them a chance to repent so that you would relent and be merciful. Jonah's furious at God's mercy. And the reason that he leaves, he reorients his life, he goes from uh, the, the Tarshish, which we joke sounds like a, a sauce, that is on the very eastern part of the Mediterranean, and he goes all the way to the opposite, the western part of the Mediterranean. Right? He leaves, I'm sorry, he, he, he flees, he flees to Tarshish, which is, yeah. So anyways, he goes from one side of the Mediterranean all the way to the other side, completely reorients his life. And we learn the simple lesson that decisions based on disdain for others leads us off course of God's desired plan. It wasn't that he was fearful. It's that there was this group of other people that he disdained. He was against. He, was hate, he, hated, he had hatred in his heart towards them. And it reorients his life. And as he flees... We know the story that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The storm comes, gets thrown off the boat, the fish comes. His, his whole life gets reoriented out of disdain for other people. He's not trying to escape this calling out of fear. It's because of his disdain for others. When we make decisions in life, our own motives, one thing that's, that's pretty clear is, is when we make decisions that, that reorient our life based out of hatred towards other people, we go off course of God's desired plan. But then we also find that, that Jonah is furious. And as you're reading through this in the Hebrew again, we, there's this kind of play on words, there's this pun where it talks about like God relents on his fury, but that increases Jonah's fury. He's angry. 
He's upset. He's mad. And, and, and it's interesting because Jonah is a prophet and a preacher, and he has just delivered what might be the most successful sermon in history. He's delivered a five-word message, and every single person that has heard it has reoriented their, their life. They have, they have come to this place of repentance. They have cried out to God for help. The whole city is saved. This might be the most successful sermon ever given. And you think that Jonah would be like, oh, yeah, I could preach. I should have my own YouTube channel. Like, I, this is, I have influence. I am talented. I am gift. Look what I, you know, it, none, none of his reaction matches up with the results of the sermon he gave. And that's strange. And I can tell you right now, like, as, as, as someone that gets up and, and speaks, like, this is, like, we all have professions. We all have craft. How people respond to it, like, my, my emotions go up and down, whether or not, you know, people respond to it in a way that I was hoping for. But, but even in, like, you know, bad sermons, or I, I can't imagine being angry at the response of people when they have turned their hearts back towards God. You don't respond to, to things, a movement of God with anger, unless there's something else going on deep inside of you. And Jonah's reaction doesn't match up with what we expect the results to be. This is a man of God. This is a prophet. This is someone who is the mouthpiece of God, who speaks what God wants him to speak, gets the results that God wants, and is left with a burning anger inside of his heart. What's going on here is, is probably that, that Jonah, this disdain that he has for the Ninevites, comes from an idol in his heart where he has ideas about this other group of people and ideas about what this other group of people are trying to do to his own country and his own countrymen. And he has stopped caring about the transformation of these people, and this hatred has driven him to just desire their destruction so that he can protect the thing that he loves and holds dear. And it's not that it's wrong to to love and hold things dear, but when, the, when you love and hold something dear in a way that you desire the destruction of something else, what you realize is even the good things that we love can become idols. They can take hold of something where we put our hope, our trust, our identity in those instead of God. What's ironic, too, is that in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, when he's in the belly of the well, the whale, the fish, he has this little statement where he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. They forfeit the love of God. Jonah has pride in his heart. And this is so easy for, 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 for us religious people, for religious leaders, to have this pride in our heart. For Jonah, national security is at stake. He wants revenge for his enemies. And what we find is that the defense of hidden idols lead to uncontrollable emotions, usually anger. For, for Jonah, this uncontrollable emotion comes out as he's trying to defend something that he holds dear, and that has been threatened. Defense of our hidden idols leads to uncontrollable emotions, usually anger. This guy just gave an amazing sermon. And I feel like so much of our outrage in culture today comes from our places of pride. So much of our, our outrage and these emotions that we can't control come from these idols that we protect, but we have placed our identity and our hope 
in certain things outside of God. I think, obviously, there's this conversation going on right now with the politics of our world, um, of, our, of our country. But more than that, there's, there's other things that we, we try to hold so dear and defend inside of our heart. We have these idols that get revealed. Someone on, um, a, a pastor that I follow posted this the other day. It said, pull up your uncomfortable emotions by the roots, and you'll find the idols clinging to them. Uncontrollable fury. God relents from his fury because he desires mercy for a people, and all Jonah can do is get angry at that. Then another thing that Jonah does here is he starts to quote scripture back to God. And you think, well, that, that's a good thing, right? Like he's, he's sharing, like he, but, but he's quoting scripture out of an accusation towards God. He's quoting scripture to justify his own emotions. He's quoting scripture to say, I'm right to feel this way. And it's interesting, the, the words that he uses, he's, he's describing God. I, I knew you were going to be like this. I knew you were going to be compassionate and forgiving and relenting. And He's quoting these words from Moses. And he's quoting the scripture to justify his own emotions and feelings. Jonah's actually setting God against God, all to justify himself. And what we find is when he gets done quoting scripture to justify his emotions, when he's, when he's setting God against himself to protect why he feels this way, at the end he's like, I am ready to die. I am ready, like, take my life. I don't want to even live anymore. And I find that this is also something as a religious leader that is easy to do. Because when we quote scripture, when we, when we are, are are talking about the character of God, it should be something that is life-giving. It should be something that, that fills us up. And if we're using it in a way that we have weaponized Scripture to justify our own selfish emotions, something exhausting happens. Using Scripture selectively to justify your, yourself leads to a weariness. As religious people, this is hard to not fall into. Keller, Tim Keller, a pastor, um, talking about this uh, passage says this. He says, whenever we read the Bible in order to say, aha, I'm right, and whenever we read it to, to feel righteous and wise in our own eyes, we are using the Bible to make ourselves fools or worse, since the Bible says that the mark of evil fools is that to be wise in their own eyes, as Proverbs 26, 12 says, if we use the Bible to puff up our own ego with our correctness and our righteousness and to denounce all others, then studying scripture becomes a source of death. And indeed, Jonah's use of the Bible is not bringing him joy, but rather taking him to the brink of disaster. Jonah's quoting scripture about the character of God to justify his own kind of selfish heart and it has left him exhausted. And then finally, what we find is that Jonah is, he has experienced God's grace through the fish. He has been saved by God, but at the same time, he doesn't want that for other people. So it says he's desiring God's grace, but not being transformed by it, it leads to a sense of entitlement, which is something as religious people that is, is hard to not get caught up in entitlement. Do we believe that we're all broken and in need of salvation? Do we believe that God has a heart for people that are different than us, that look different than us, that act different than us, people of different nationalities, different ethnicities, different 
things that they value? Or do we think that this is just for us? Sometimes we forget about kind of the missional call of a church in this world to go to the other people that even we despise with this message of God's mercy. Here Jonah has experienced God's grace, but it hasn't transformed something inside him to allow him to want it for other people. There's an entitlement here. As Jesus is living his life, as he comes to earth to to reveal to us uh, God's heart, what he's doing in this world, he he, uh, tells this story in Matthew chapter 20. And I think it's a story that is geared towards the religious community. And I just want to read it. Uh, It's a parable. It says this in Matthew 20. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius, it's a a type of currency, for a day, and he sent them into the vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon, about, and about three in the afternoon, and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out, and he found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Verse 7 says, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you also go and work in the vineyard, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to this foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were first hired, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne burden to work, uh, of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for one denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired the last the same as I gave you. And don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Another translation says, do you begrudge my generosity? It's a long story. It's a parable. It's not literal. But it it starts to tell the way that that God, God spends generously his mercy on us. And what we know about God's mercy is that it's not based on our merit. It's not based on on what we do, all the the, the things that we do to try to to please him. It's based on his goodness. And this story is this this example of how God spends that mercy. Sometimes it's easy to get caught up like Jonah and feeling entitled, having a hard time thinking that God would spend his mercy on others who haven't done what we have done. Moberly is a old scholar that says Jonah is a specialist in creedal confessions. Yet for some reason he does not get it. You can know a thing to death and, for, and be for all purposes completely ignorant of it. This man of God who has this calling to go and preach about the mercy of God 
is furious about the mercy of God. And his fury reveals something in his own heart. We learn a lot about Jonah's heart in here. And uh, as, we, as we read through it, what I find is that it's a fun sermon for me because I can point out all the things that are wrong about Jonah. And I'm good at pointing out the things that are wrong about Jonah and other people. I'm a very cynical person. Even as a pastor, I can point out all the things that are wrong with people all the time. And yet, this passage calls to us to say, do I recognize myself in the figure of Jonah? People that heard heard this text originally, these are God's people, these are the Israelites. They would have had all sorts of feelings about the Ninevites, and yet they would identify with Jonah in this passage more than the sailors, more than the Ninevites. Do I recognize myself in the figure of Jonah? And do I detect in myself symptoms of what is maybe the Jonah syndrome? Where I can receive the grace of God, I can be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and yet not have a heart that breaks for people who are far from God. Do I recognize myself in Jonah? Yes. The same types of things that set me off course, that make me angry, that create weariness, that reveal that I feel entitled. Those are all present in my life. And as I read through Jonah, what we find is that he's actually more angry about God's compassion for people that he hates than the fact that they might perish without his mercy. Jonah tells us about God. He says, I knew that you were gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. This is the God that we follow. This is the God that we receive mercy from. This is the God that calls us to a certain life where we dispense that to other people. And it's so easy to get caught up with the Jonah syndrome. As we celebrate six years as a church, we think about kind of our identity of who we want to be as a people. One of the things that blows me away about this passage is when people talk about this God of the Old Testament. And I talk about to people who, you know, they've they've left the church or they've deconstructed their faith. There's all of these issues about the God of the Old Testament. So full of wrath and judgment. And yet when you hear from an Old Testament prophet that talks about the God of the Old Testament, he uses words like compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sinning his calamity. And those aren't even Jonah's words. He's actually quoting Moses. This God of the Old Testament that we have misunderstood. I want to be a church that tells people about the God of the Old Testament that they've misunderstood. And I want to be a church that tells people about the God of the here and now that has been misunderstood. This God that we follow who loves humanity. He loves the world so much that he sends Jesus into the world to die for humanity. 
We're pleasantly surprised when we read Jonah and we hear about this God. We've had all sorts of misconceptions about. I want to be a community that points people to the God who has been misunderstood as a church. When I think about our identity as Desert City, I also want to be a community that experiences and dispenses grace and compassion. If this is what the character of God is, this should transform us as people to be gracious and compassionate to the world. I want to be a community that is slow to anger and abounding in love. And oftentimes I think we, especially me and this culture that we live in, we're abounding in anger and we're slow to love. But to be slow to anger, abounding in love. And I want to be a community who relents from sending calamity to each other. That we would have grace for each other. All the ways that we take each other off. All the things that we miss the mark with. That we would relent from sending calamity. This God that Jonah talks about, that he gets upset about. We would talk about this God in a way that has transformed our heart at Desert City. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. A word that was about this this man of God, this prophet of God who was given a special calling by you. Those who first heard this story, Lord, would have been your people. And it would have been such a challenge knowing the context of who the Ninevites were. The hatred that they would have towards them. The desire for revenge. This story would have seemed scandalous. And yet it reveals something about your radical mercy. Your radical mercy that is the only hope for this world. Lord, we acknowledge that even as your people, we live lives in ways that reveal the pride inside of our heart that leads to knocking us off course, that leads to uncontrollable emotions, anger, that leaves us weary. We're often entitled. But Lord, let us not be envious of your generosity. Let us be a conduit of it. Let us see the world and people as you see them. May we be gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. May we relent from sending calamity. And Lord, as we continue through this series, we just ask that you just continue to expose things in our heart that need to be exposed and transform the things that need to be transformed. Make us more like you. As your church, may we be your body. In your son's name we pray.